Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Good day. Welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel uh, on New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I am a host on the channel. And today I'm pleased and honored to have with us Peter Hitchens. Mr. Hitchens is a writer and journalist with a regular column in the mail on Sunday. He is also an Orwell Prize winner. And today we are speaking about his book, Phony Victory, The World War to Illusion. Welcome, Mr. Hitchens. Pleasure to be with you. Uh, Mr. Hitchens, what is the primary thesis of your book? That the, the Western world, particularly the, the winning countries in the Second World War, and most particularly my own country, Great Britain, have, have constructed a myth about the Second World War, uh, which is dangerous because it is increasingly used as a model for starting new wars of choice. And it's based on a number of misapprehensions and mistakes about what actually happened in World War II, which I seek to correct. My main purpose in writing it was because I was increasingly tired of my country rushing into wars of choice, such as in Iraq and in Libya. And the argument always being that the threat which we faced was a new Hitler, uh, that the leader who wanted to mount the attack was a new Churchill, and that anybody who opposed this attack was a feeble umbrella-waving Neville Chamberlain, who therefore didn't need to be listened to. The whole model, what I call Munich syndrome, the whole model of 1938-1939 as a pattern for going to war seemed to me to have lodged in the public mind and in the minds of politicians in a way which was dangerous. Combined with that, a very strong belief, which is not actually justified by the facts, uh, that that the United Kingdom and the United States went to war in Europe, particularly to save the Jews of Europe from Hitler. It isn't, alas, true. By winning the war, they did save some of the Jews of Europe, but it wasn't their purpose in fighting the war. It wasn't why they went to war. And indeed, many of the actions of the British government, and to some extent those of the United States government before and during the war did not in any way help the persecuted and, in many cases, trapped Jews of Europe at all. Uh, to anticipate a little bit something I was going to go later on in um, our conversation, but since you brought it up, I'll ask you now. Is it the case uh, in the UK, um, or for that matter in the US or the West in general, that uh, popular opinion believes that we went to war with Hitler's Germany to save European Jewry? Yes, I think it is very common belief, and I, I cite as an example of this, and it, 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 it's very typical, a, a broadcast made by Prince Charles, the current heir to the British throne, uh, in which he pretty much makes this assumption that it was war fought to, to save Jews from persecution. It's a very common thing, widely believed. I think if anybody would care to research it, they find it was pretty much lodged in the public mind in Britain. I couldn't speak so much for the United States, because I don't think that World War II has... 
uh, such a major part in the in, in in the historical myth of the United States. The only two really important wars in the USA are the Civil War and the Vietnam War, and the Second World War comes up a very poor third after those. But I, I think that there is a, a general belief that it was fought for benevolent reasons. It was a benevolent war. And, of course, it has attracted uh, the, the, the description of the good war, partly because, I say, of the, the, the element in it of defeating a particularly revolting tyranny. The problem with that description as the good war is that in the course of defeating one revolting tyranny, we ended up very heavily appeasing another revolting tyranny in the shape of Joseph Stalin's USSR, to whom we then handed a large portion of Central Europe as his prize. Uh, again, I don't want to go into this too much, um, at least not now, but um, would it be the case that this particular view of World War II um, or one of the benevolent outcomes that we, well, not outcomes, but uh, goals that we went to war to save European jewelry, was that popular belief in the UK in, say, uh, up to, say, 1965? Or is that something which came subsequently as the public consciousness of the Holocaust, um, the extermination of uh, European Jewry by Hitler's Germany, uh, became more prevalent? Fascinating question to which I can't give a factual answer because no one's ever done this, any kind of survey work to show. But I would imagine you're right. Uh, the, the prominence in the Western public mind of the Holocaust, so-called, uh, and the uh, or the Shoah, as I prefer to call it, and the uh, and the whole issue of the the mass murder of of European Jews has grown greatly. Partly, of course, as we know, as a result of, of television series and films uh, since the 1960s, and quite possibly didn't play as much of a part in in, in the myth until then. But it certainly does now. Uh, and I would challenge anybody who has any dealings with the public rather than with expert historians to find many people who don't believe that this was one of the reasons why we went to war. People are incredibly vague about history. And unfortunately, as, as a trained historian, I'm very familiar with what you're saying on that point. Uh, getting back to the beginnings of the book, uh, in your reading of the Munich Crisis of 1938, I take it you would not agree with historians like, say, Williamson Murray, who posit that, strategically speaking, the Munich settlement, um, insofar as France and UK did not go to war with Germany in September 1938, was, um, I think Williamson Murray refers to it as disaster by simply the fact that um, Germans were able to take huge amounts of armaments, material from uh, what from what subsequently became the Czech protectorate, uh, which would not have been the case if war had been fought in 1938. And also, of course, the Czech army, while it was not a first-rate army in the German or French or even British sense or, or Soviet sense for that matter, uh, was on in defensive terms, given the fortifications on the Czech uh, borders with Germany, uh, a formidable opponent, and that um, uh, front, a front that the Germans did not want, was lost once the uh, settlement was agreed to by Chamberlain and Daladier. Well, I love this argument. I don't think we'll ever settle it, but my own view is heavily influenced by a recent journey I, I took from uh, from Prague to Vienna, uh, which emphasized something I already knew most people don't know, 
which is that Vienna is east of Prague. And if you, I traveled across the area which would have been the scene of any war between Germany and Czechoslovakia had such a thing taken place. And of course, the, the fortifications in the Erzgebirge uh, up in the mountains would have been extremely potent. But the problem was that because of the Angelus of Austria into the Reich, uh, Germany had far easier borders to cross. And they are utterly undefended and pretty much indefensible. It's a very good tank country if you do that journey. I don't think that Czechoslovakia could have defended itself. I think there's a fair amount of evidence that Benesh never wanted to use the army that he possessed. People often don't. Uh, and I doubt very much whether he would have fought. And also, had he done so, uh, you'd have to explain to me in some detail what a French army configured for defense and a British army that barely existed and was exercising at the time with broomsticks rather than rifles could have done about it. Uh, also, the British Royal Air Force at that time was pretty much entirely equipped with biplanes as well. I just don't think myself that there was any possibility of Britain and France going to war, and I, 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 I don't, uh, I'm not quite sure how they ever worked themselves in a position where it might have been considered likely, uh, particularly Britain, which had no, had made at no stage any guarantees of Czechoslovakia. Uh, I have to say that I in terms of that portion of your argument, I agree with you that um, there's an expression in French to describe French policy of the period, actually the interwar period as a whole, vis-à-vis France's um, central and East European allies, le sangre de les autres, uh, translated roughly, the blood of others, meaning yeah. that these allies were, um, in essence, viewed as substitutes for the Russian steamroller of 1914, and it was meant for them to assist France, not France to assist them when it came to a crunch. Well, France was in a state of its own illusions at the time. It simultaneously wanted to maintain itself as a great power. It had been one of the victors of 1918, but it really wasn't strong enough nor prepared to make the sacrifices on the scale necessary to enter into another major shooting war with Germany. Uh, they had had Verdun, and the, the line from Verdun to Vichy seems to me to be quite straightforward. They were not simply were not willing to make uh, to make sacrifice of their manhood on that scale again in, in, uh, so recently after the, the previous time. And I don't think that France had ever any intention of of charging towards the German border again. Uh, it, it was a disaster when they did it in 1914, and uh, it was it, it cost them so much uh, in in young manhood that I don't think that the France of 1938 or 1939 or 1940 was ever prepared to do it. They were prepared to fight a defensive war of attacks, and uh, it's, there's many myths about the French performance in the early part of the war, where they were able to come up against the Germans. They fought very well, but it just it, it just wasn't. There was no mood, no political support for a war of aggression. Now, nor, nor I have to say, was the French army configured for it. They, they simply weren't prepared for it, for a war of attack. Now, let me ask you because uh, there is a school. It's not a major school. It's a relatively minor school, but it's in some interesting and, in some cases, important historians who belong to it. Uh, one um, in his book, *The Impact of Hitler*, uh, Cowl Maurice Cowling, and the other one is uh, the British diplomatic historian John Charmley, um, as well as a few others. But in essence, their argument is, and I think it's similar to, but I believe, and you correct me if I'm wrong, slightly different from your own, is from their perspective, World War II either fought in 1939 or 1940-41 was from British imperial perspective a disaster. 
should not have been yeah, fought. Well, yeah, that's, that, all, that, that is quite true, but the, the should not have been fought is not, is not something you can, you, you, you can then logically adduce from that. I think that almost certainly there had to be a, 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 a war at some point which Hitler's Germany had to lose for the, for the good of Europe and indeed for the good of Germany. Uh, and I think that this, this was something which any, anybody could foresee. The question is what shape that war would take and who was going to win it. The problem with the 1939 war, which Britain and France confected out of more or less nothing, was that they pretty much lost it. Uh, and in, in France's case, they were subjugated. In Britain's case, they were only saved from subjugation. We, I should say, were only saved from subjugation by, by the wonderful English Channel, uh, for which I give thanks daily. Uh, but that was all that saved us. We, we, we certainly didn't have the, the, the land army which could have fought off a, a German attack if we hadn't had the channel. And so what was the point of that? But that doesn't mean you shouldn't ever go to war or be prepared to go to war. It, it, it raises all kinds of other actually now counterfactual questions, which I'm not really concerned with. Uh, what, what I am interested in is the Polish guarantee, particularly. Uh, given, in fact, that the the... The Czechs had a far better case, and Germany had a far worse case over Sudetenland uh, than than Germany had over, for instance, Danzig or the Corridor. Uh, it's odd that we didn't go to war over Czechoslovakia, but we did go to war over a, uh, over a matter which probably could have been settled diplomatically if we'd taken a different view. Why choose Poland, and, and why choose September 1939, when Britain was not at all ready for a continental land war, to go to war? These are questions which I think are, are worth asking. Now, um, getting back indeed to the guarantee of Poland by the Western powers in um, uh, the spring of 1939, um, for you, this is a mistake, a, strate a strategic mistake of the first magnitude, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, because A, it gave the initiative, diplomatically speaking, not to the British and the French, but in fact to uh, Colonel Beck's Polish foreign minister's um, hands, and second, of course, is that uh, both powers ended up uh, circa September uh, 1939 entering the war prematurely. Is that the yes. that gist of your yes. argument? Yes, and, and, and what's more, it was fantastically dishonest. I mean, it, it did give it did give Poland the, the the choice and the control over when or whether a war began, uh, and it was fantastically dishonest on our part because neither France nor Britain had any intention of intervening in any material way to help Poland. Uh, the, the guarantee was militarily empty, and all the high command knew this, and they informed their political leaders of it. And the only people who seemed to have taken it seriously were the Poles. The Germans didn't take it seriously. I don't think the Soviet Union took it seriously. Uh, it's absolutely for certain that the British military command didn't take it seriously, and the French military command didn't take it seriously. But the, the Poles actually believed we would come to their aid and, and based their diplomacy on this belief. And, uh, and as a result, and the, the great question which which A.J.P. Taylor asked, would you rather have been uh, a betrayed Czech or a, or, or, or a saved Pole? Uh, the, what happened to Poland as a result of its, of its deciding that it would, uh, it, it would defy Germany over the, over the corridor in Danzig was that it was wiped from the map for several years and, uh, and subjected to the most appalling horrors, uh, which, uh, which still resound. And what was the point of that? I, the whole episode seems to me to, to, to sink. And both from the point of view of Poland and from the point of view of the powers which made the guarantee, and indeed from the point of view of the result, which, as I say, without the English Channel would have been the defeat of France and Britain by Germany, and, uh, and possibly, quite possibly, permanent control of Europe by uh, by a, a national socialist Germany. 
stretching on for decades. Who can tell? It was very close to being a much worse disaster than it was. Am I correct in uh, believing from what you write in the book that you're not, how should I put it, very enthusiastic about uh, Colonel Beck's Poland? I'm not very enthusiastic, but what I'm saying is that you can't you can't make out a particularly strong ethical case on on behalf of Poland. Poland had at that time become a more or less a military dictatorship. Uh, it had a strongly anti-Semitic character, not in the way that uh, Nazi Germany was, but certainly it, it was uh, Jews in Poland had what I think could be reasonably described as a second-class citizenship uh, and were often treated quite badly. And also Poland had taken part in the disarmament of Czechoslovakia. Uh, a, a, an act which infuriated France, uh, and particularly Deladier, who was livid about it, and which made a lot of people very, uh, very hostile towards Poland. It, the idea that it was at that point a, a bastion of democracy which needs to be saved by other democracies doesn't add up either. It, it, I just raise these points because it, they tend to be assumed as being the case by people that we went to war to save another democracy, that we went to war for an ally. But in fact, it, Poland had been one of the first countries to sign a non-aggression pact with Hitler's Germany and had been on the point of renewing it and, as I say, had been encouraged by Germany to, 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 to grab Teschen from Czechoslovakia when Czechoslovakia was prostrate after Munich. So it, it wasn't, it wasn't, there was no emotional case for, for, for rushing to Poland's aid in this matter. Uh, and what's more, there was no strategic or military case either. The, the reason, as far as I can establish from, from what reading I've done on this, is that the British Foreign Office was strongly driven by a desire to, to re-establish and, uh, and reassert a Britain's status as a great European power. And they wanted a pretext in, to, to do so. I think they believed at the time that any new conflict in Europe would be a rerun of, of the First World War in which we were able to blockade Germany and the, the French would provide the troops. And the, the problem with that was it was it was a poor calculation in the first place, but a complete miscalculation once the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact had happened at the end of August 1939, which rendered our entire strategy empty. But we went ahead with it anyway. Now, in the, in the book, you rely a great deal upon a um, book written around 30 years ago by Simon Newman, March yes, 1939, The British Guarantee of Poland, which actually I have in front of me. I, I've enjoyed reading a couple of times this book. Um, I did get the sense, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you disagree a little bit with his thesis, which was that the British change, very sharp turn in March and April 1939, on giving the guarantee to Poland, uh, he seems to indicate that it was Foreign Office and Halifax, the Foreign Secretary's concern, that if Poland was not offered a guarantee, Poland would be potentially browbeaten, pressured, um, forced into um, an alliance with Germany of some type. Well, about forced. I mean, I, I think that he, he was. I think that the, the grave danger at Poland was that it, it could be cajoled into an alliance with Germany. Or if you a like lot cajoled. Of, there had been a lot of conversations between uh, von Ribbentrop and uh, and Beck, uh, and indeed between I think uh, Hitler and Beck at one point on on this on this subject, and all kinds of blandishments involving. Uh, bits of Ukraine and all kinds of other things were, were, were being offered. 
So I don't think that it was a question of, of, of being browbeaten. They 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 didn't trust Poland to to um, stand not out to become an ally of Hitler. Right. And I, so I don't disagree with that at all. No, I think that uh, the, the there was a great fear, and, and the the guarantee was given partly to to put an end to that fear. The great fear that that Poland would fall into the Hitler camp. And then, and then, if that had happened, what would then be the British pretext for going to war? Or, or I think I, I think Newman would say that if Poland became part de facto de jure of the Axis um, powers, then there would no longer be anything resembling a European balance a, at all. Well, it's difficult. I mean, there was, of course, there was, of course, Romania uh, was, I think, would have been bound to become an issue pretty quickly. Uh, but I'm not sure whether you could really have persuaded the British people to go to war on, on Romania. I, I think that Halifax had become particularly persuaded that, by, by the, the age-old argument, which gets a grip on foreign secretaries, which is something must be done, uh, and guaranteeing Poland is something. So let's do that, uh, because there was this feeling that we weren't we were making noises about standing up to Hitler in Europe. We weren't doing anything, and, and they were looking for something to do. And foreign officers do this to this day, and prime ministers as well. And I don't, I don't credit it with all that much thought behind it. You look at the the the, 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 the characterization of British diplomacy in this period as a desire to avoid war seems to me to be almost completely wrong. Uh, there seems to have been a strong desire to find a war in large parts of the Foreign Office, and the, the way in which various scares about Poland and I think Romania as well were, were treated with enormous seriousness by the Foreign Office and indeed by Downing Street suggest that there was a desire to find a pretext for war, not a desire to avoid it. Certainly after March 1939, I think that was so. Uh, what, what would you say is the causation for this almost a U-turn between policy in September uh, 38, about not, go not going to war almost under any conditions, or well, almost, and this um, different view in March and April uh, 1939, where, well, as you said, you, they're looking for a pretext. You to have to remember that... It the very important thing about the Czech crisis, in general, Britain had pretty much conceded the, the point that the Sudeten Germans should, uh, should, should be released from Czech rule before the whole business began. And indeed, there had been in Britain for a very long time, and there certainly was in, 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 in educated public opinion, a strong sympathy for the Sudeten Germans. Uh, going on, uh, one which had been held by, by people, quite prominent people on, on, on the British left, uh, right back into the 1920s as a particularly bad element of the Versailles Treaty, which was not popular in Britain. So there was no, there was, there was no great desire uh, to go to war against what a lot of people thought was, was, was probably a, a reasonable reordering of, uh, of Europe to avoid trouble. Uh, the, so the, the parcel had been sold really before that even got going. But they did realize uh, what, when... <laughs> And you could argue in endlessly about what happened in Prague in, in March 1939. And H.J.P. Taylor is very good on this because basically what it was was a, a collapse of the rump of the Czech state, uh, which caused President Hatcher not to be summoned to Berlin by Hitler, but to ask uh, to be received by Hitler in, in, in Berlin to, and, and to travel up voluntarily because uh, the, the rump Czech state was unsustainable and was falling to pieces and into that vacuum of power Germany moved. But that having been said, of course, at that point, it became clear to the British government that if, uh, that if there was anything was going to be done about Germany, it had to be done soon and they needed a pretext. And I think, uh, I think the events in, in Prague in March 1939 simply caused 
the British government to believe that it was going to have to go to war pretty soon and that it needed a reason which it could put towards the British people, who were at that time, I still, I think, still pretty reluctant uh, to be involved in a war. And they needed a cause. And I think they didn't want to look as if they were, they were seeking a war. They, one has to remember a crucial fact about the Second World War. The declaration of war on, on Germany was made by Britain and France, not the other way around. Correct. Uh, in the book, you say that World War II was two distinct conflicts. What do you mean by that exactly? Well, the first conflict was the Anglo-French war with, uh, war with Germany, uh, allegedly over Poland. Uh, which, which France and Britain then lost. Uh, and the war was sort of maintained in escrow, uh, for a while by Britain, which did not make peace with Germany, rightly did not make peace with Germany, in my view, uh, and, and stayed in the fight, but quite unable on its own to return in force to the continent of Europe. And, and, and conducting the war in remote places, uh, such as North Africa, rather than in direct contact with the enemy. Uh, and we kept the war alive, and then the war was taken over in 1941, first of all by the Soviet Union and by the United States, uh, which employed the war for another wholly different purpose. And Britain remained on the on the winning side, but very much as a junior partner, particularly after the Tehran Conference, and, and was more or less told what to do and had no real say in the outcome. And was, while officially accounted to be a victor, uh, very uninfluential in the final settlement of it. As for France, I, for, for, we had to pretend that France uh, hadn't lost uh, for, for the sake of French morale. I didn't, I didn't um, anyway, think that was a bad thing, but, but, but France was also welcomed back into the ranks of victors, although it too had been... Had, had been Obviously, it was a loser insofar as occupied. I'm sorry? Obviously, not really a victor insofar as occupied for... for well, no, but it, on the other hand, you know, the, 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 French, uh, the French army w did take part in, in, in the defeat of the German forces in Western Europe and in the advance on, on Germany because it was psychologically important for, 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 for post-war France for that to have taken place. Uh, but there is, I, the, the, again, the, the Britain played a very large part in the D-Day landings in Normandy in 1944. But from that point onwards, the, the American... Uh, the American contribution, and indeed American command and political influence, became, I think, overwhelmingly more important than British in military and political terms. So that by the time the the, the Germans were finally defeated, uh, Britain was a junior partner at the conference table. Uh, going back to uh, 1940, is it not the case that there is uh, some uh, empirical evidence that in late May, May 27, 28, 29? that Churchill entertained, uh, to a degree, asking Mussolini for terms? I'm not sure whether Churchill did. I, you, you, I, you may have, I'm sure you have better information than me. I'm, I'm pretty certain that, that Halifax was interested in it. Yes. Uh, but I, I'm not sure how, I, Churchill may well have been aware of this, and, uh, but I think that pretty rapidly he understood that if you pursued that line, once you ask for details, uh, you're, you're on the railway line. Uh, which leads to the forest of Compiègne. You don't want to know the details because once you do that, you've exposed the fact that you want to, you want to, uh, you, you want to stop fighting. And I think Churchill understood very quickly that the moment that the moment we, we started talking about stopping fighting, it was over. You can keep up national morale. You can carry on with all the privations and difficulties and terrors of continuing with war. You had to fight on, or you would, or, or in the end, you, you would end up making a dishonorable peace. So he may have, the idea may have crossed his mind, but I think the great thing about Churchill was that he left his mind again pretty quickly, whereas I'm not at all sure that's so about Halifax. 
But isn't it the case that the, I suppose in retrospect, post facto, you can say romantic and emotional arguments in terms that a church approached that issue and subsequently the war cabinet and the British people are the same romantic and emotional terms that they approach the war post post 1945. Uh, which wars post 1945? Well, in terms of how they view the Second World War overall. Well, I don't know. I think that you have to you have to enter into any discussion of this the unique nature of the German National Socialist regime. And this was not this was not just a government of an aggressive military power. It wasn't just a standard issue Central European despotism. It was something special. And I think it was it it, it wasn't it, it it was important that it, it was defeated both militarily and internationally and defeated in such a way that that, that regime did not survive. And I I still think from the point of view of of, of human civilization that was a good thing. Uh, but I, so it doesn't necessarily mean that, that that means you have to endorse every single action that was taken in in, in the World War II, which did actually happen. I think there's some very serious mistakes were made. We we could have done a lot better if we'd been a bit more cautious about how we behaved. We should never have been in a position in 1940 where where we, the, one of the world's greatest empires, were were on the point of considering opening peace talks with. Hitler, I, it's, it's appalling to think that we should ever have even been in that position. Uh, With our army standing up to its armpits in salt water at Dunkirk. Yes. And that was a very close-run thing. If Hitler had captured the British army at Dunkirk, I don't think we could have fought on with that many hostages in his hand. Perhaps not. It, uh, so it seems to me to be unlikely. I mean, it, it, with the, the nucleus of the new army and indeed uh, uh, that many people in in the hands of, of a ruthless enemy puts you in a very, very hard negotiating position. Correct. Uh, in your discussion of that period, you go a little bit into the uh, whole genesis of the guilty men's school of Michael Foote et Ali, and you point out the hypocrisy of the fact that uh, uh, all of these authors uh, were from the political left, and of course the British political left had, if not been necessarily what we call appeasers, were most definitely adherents to uh, opposing what they characterize as, quote, an imperialist war, unquote, and therefore... Oh, completely. It's, it's, a, crucial, it's a crucial part of the, of the British World War II myth, that the, the left pretend to themselves that they, were, that, that they were tough and principled in an era when they were the reverse, basically. But isn't also another aspect of the hypocrisy of the entire um, argument or thesis or book, however you wish to describe them, Foot et Ali, is that uh, uh, we found out many years subsequently that the genesis of the book received backing, obviously, sub, of a sub-realistic variety from none other than Lord Beaverbrook, who, of course, was a out-and-out appeaser, um, and who we learned um, in 10 or 15 years ago had uh, one senior cabinet minister, Sir Samuel Hoare, um, one of Neville Chamberlain's senior colleagues, uh, on a retainer. He was uh, giving him uh, monies to, so that uh, Sir Samuel could enjoy a proper livelihood as cabinet minister. Well, a lot of that went on at the time. Uh, of course, Winston Churchill was also in receipt of money from all kinds of people uh, at the time. Uh, these days, if, if such things went on, they, they'd all be handed out of office, I imagine, but it didn't happen then. But I, I don't, I, Beaverbrook was fickle. Um, I don't think that 
I'm not, I'm not sure it's really central to any argument that I'm having what 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 people um, did or didn't do. Can you tell us how the UK was impoverished by what was called uh, cash and carry? Oh, we were not that well off in the first place. Our economy had been very badly damaged by the First World War. We moved from being a major credit nation with huge foreign investments and uh, enormous reserves into being a debtor nation, which then, and this is the most crucial thing, had then defaulted on its on its war debt to the United States. And the, which I think was 1934. And when we had an economy which is not really uh, very well positioned to gear itself up for war, uh, we had important labor shortages in, in, in various skilled areas and important, I think, machine tool shortages and other things which made it difficult for us to produce war materials ourselves without importing both, um, both raw materials and machine tools. And so we were very dependent on the United States. Uh, for uh, for war supplies, and the United States was not prepared to to give us anything on credit because the neutrality acts it had to be cash and carry, and in the early stages of the war, the, the cash was basically sent across uh, in secret convoys in the form of gold bullion and negotiable securities, and it was sent out across to Canada initially and then passed on down to the United States, and we ran out of money. Uh, there simply wasn't any more money to to to, to pay for the war, and at, at the time. In 1940, when uh, when the the Lend Lease Bill was proposed and began to go through the Congress uh, under the interesting title of House of Representatives Bill 1776, uh, the I think the then Treasury Henry Morgenthau had to go down to the Senate and, and and say to the senators, "Look, these guys don't have any money left. We've checked, we've audited them, uh, and if we don't help them, then they'll have to stop fighting." So that this actually happened, and we we were broke, and there was no the British ambassador actually said this to a group of American journalists. Sorry, boys, we're broke. It's your money we need, and got into some trouble for saying it, but it was true, and it, it led to some considerable bitterness between Britain and the United States at the time and later. Can you recount uh, for us FDR's request to Mackenzie King, the Canadian Prime Minister? In, 19, in the summer of 1940, concerning the British fleet, he seemed to be. It, it's a very, it, it's a very elliptical conversation. But what it appears to be suggesting is, is that is that whatever happens, if Britain loses the war and, 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 and the Germans invade or we surrender, that whatever happens, somehow or other, some way, must be found of, of bringing the British fleet uh, under American control and into American ports. Uh, it's a fascinating conversation. It's it's done through intermediaries, but it seems to me to uh, it's a perfectly reasonable thing for them to have done. Uh, we did something very similar to the French uh, about the same time, and when they didn't play, we we, we opened fire on their fleet at Nassau Kabir. So I I don't it's it, it, it's just an interesting. It seems to me I I I'm sure that specialists have known about it for some time. It was interesting to me to read just how. Uh, ruthless FDR was prepared to be in, in getting hold of the British fleet and making sure it didn't fall into the hands of, of, of Germany. Can you expand on your statement that Hitler, in fact, did not have any concrete plans to invade Britain in the summer of 1940? 
Well, I don't really need to expand on it. There are no such plans. None, none were ever made. Uh, the, the Germans didn't ever possess a single landing craft. Uh, the German Navy and the German Army could not agree on the size and scale and uh, and the uh, uh, nature of the invasion. Navies and armies always disagree about invasions uh, for, for rather obvious reasons. One wants a broad front, one wants a narrow one, uh, and they never did agree. And it's fairly clear from documents which uh, which I quote in the book that the, the at a fairly early stage in the summer of 1940, the German high command carried on talking about an invasion mainly for propaganda purposes rather than because they actually intended to carry one out they they assumed that they would uh, terrify and demoralize and, and disrupt us into making peace rather than actually having to risk that fantastically difficult thing uh, an invasion across uh, across across the sea it's, these can go wrong however good you are and why would they have done it? I, the other thing is, there's no, there's no real evidence that Hitler ever had any particular interest in Britain at all. It wasn't central to his, to his plans. And one of the things about the Second World War is that we in Britain like to think that we were at the centre of it and Hitler's main enemy. But in fact, uh, once Britain and France had been knocked out in 1940, the Germans had only one concern, and that was the Soviet Union. Why was the Atlantic Charter an anti-British document? Well, because it contained all kinds of uh, all kinds of provisions which undermined, in implicitly or in some cases explicitly, Britain's continued possession of an empire, and also it it, it undermined Britain's then continuing habit of behaving as if it controlled the oceans. Uh, it, it wasn't allowed to do so, and there are a number of things in the document which examined uh, and which Mahatma Gandhi in India immediately saw. Uh, were clearly hostile to the continued existence of the British Empire. I whether just how conscious Roosevelt and his advisers were when they when they drafted these these clauses that uh, it would have this effect. I'm honestly not sure, but they certainly do. It, as a as a document and as an event, it was the most fantastic disappointment, both to Churchill and when they found out about its contents to the British people. And yet it's portrayed in, in history as a great sort of shoulder-to-shoulder, hands-across-the-sea moment of brotherhood. It was nothing of the kind. Why was the British defeat, or if you like, debacle in Singapore in early 1942 so important? Well, it is probably the greatest single defeat of British arms in our entire thousand-year history. And also because it exposed us to the derision of the Asian nations who had previously thought us invincible and then saw us being marched off into captivity by the Japanese and realized that uh, not merely could we be defeated, but we could be defeated by Asians. And I think the, the, the moral effect of that on the future of the British Empire was catastrophic. Uh, we, 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 had, we had lost our standing. And we lost our we lost our psychological power, and we never regained it. The British Empire ended at that moment, I think. But leaving aside all the horrors of what happened to the, to the captured troops. Uh, why, um, in the book, you don't mention what perhaps, in retrospect, is the greatest British success in the war, the Ultra Machine, um, a machine or uh, a tool which uh, some historians posit uh, reduced the war by at least one or two years. I don't know how you can make a calculation of that kind. I, I simply don't know. There's no, it's become a, a, a huge, uh, a huge factory of, uh, of, of, of new uh, popular historical uh, writing. Uh, but I'm not convinced of the uh, of the real value of, 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 of 
of these things, I'm afraid. I don't think it, uh, it I don't think it, it can be really calculated that it made all that much difference and didn't save us from, from being defeated in 1940. Uh, and I doubt very much whether it um, made much difference to anything else either. Who knows? I mean, I just feel that it's, that we, we make a, a great big fuss about this. Wars are won and lost by infantry. Not fighting by... infantry and tanks fighting. I mean, we, we the the thing that you no, know, you can go on and on about ultra. I don't know. I who knows. I, you, whatever claims you want to make, I don't know. Maybe it did, but I, it seems to me that the thing which decided the war in Europe was the Red Army. Like it or not, I don't like it, but it's undoubtedly true. Uh, yeah. Without the Red Army, we would have lost it. And whether, however, however many, um, however many ultra. Um, in essence, everything else was secondary to the broken. Red Army. I, I, I don't think this, I don't think it can be I don't think it can be denied. I, the, the, this was the point at which the, the the military power of Germany was broken. Uh, it was broken at Stalingrad. It was broken at Kursk, and it uh, and it continues to be broken all the way to Berlin. And that's what decided the war. It may have be it may be if the, if, if, if the Red Army had failed that that some other force might have uh, been able to do the job. But the fact is they did do the job. And it galls me to say it because the, the this was the army of one of the most unpleasant despotisms ever to ever, ever to, to govern any part of the earth. But they were our most crucial allies, and in, in, in that they were the ones who destroyed the, the German army. And the German army was no mean army; it was a very powerful and effective fighting formation. And I'm not sure whether anybody else could have done it. Certainly, nobody else did do it. Uh, the, 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 it's the, there was a lot of very fierce and brave fighting on the other flank, but I don't think uh, it, it's really very easy to argue that it decided the outcome of the war. Why do you believe Bomber Harris's uh, bombing campaign was a mistake, both practically as well as morally? Well, I think all the, all the post-war research shows that its, uh, it, its effects on the German war effort was pretty feeble. And I think that it was grotesquely immoral. And uh, I mean, I wouldn't, even if you could show that it, 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 it had a greater military effect than it has, I would still be against it. Uh, because it, it just doesn't seem to me that, uh, that, that civilized nations can deliberately drop uh, high explosive and incendiaries on, on, on women and children, uh, which is what we did. Can't do it. It's against the, all the rules of, uh, of, of Christian civilization, and that is what we did. We did night after night after night after night after. Night. It wasn't just Dresden, the one everybody's heard of. It was dozens of towns, in which you know, huge piles of rubble on which great masses of blue bottles settled because of the corpses and distraught women carrying the baked, shriveled bodies of their babies about on trains and uh, and. and, and Human fat running in the streets. I mean, it was the most appalling thing. I and mean, it, 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 as I say, it's, it, there were worse things done during the Second World War, and we all know they were they were terrible and they were worse. But that doesn't mean that we can stand aside and say, well, actually, because those terrible things were done by the other side, that we mustn't condemn or criticize any wrong things which we did. In your conclusion, you discuss the contrasting war trilogies of Even War and Olivia Olivia Manning. I was curious yes, why you didn't um, also discuss um, uh, his um, three novels on the subject of Anthony Powell. Um, fundamentally, because it never occurred to me. I don't find Anthony Powell that um, entertaining or interesting a novelist. Uh, I've tried, but I don't, whereas I find both Evelyn Warren and Olivia Manning captivating and brilliant. 
Uh, also, it just seemed to me to be very interesting that you had here two uh, two protagonists, both called Guy, both of whom ended up more or less in the same part of the uh, of, of, of the world, and uh, both of whose experiences reflected, I think, uh, rather cleverly on the, the real nature of, of a war which we misrepresent to ourselves. If you wanted people to take one thing away from this book, what would it be? Uh, please do not be led by pseudo-patriotic bombast into another war. Well, with that being said, I would like to thank you very much, Mr. Hitchens, for being so kind as to speak to us today. Thank you very much for, for asking me to do so. It's been a pleasure. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Mr. Hitchens. Pleasure.